Let's first read our text. We, we, we began looking at this text last week, and, um, and we'll continue to, to look at it this morning. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what am I doing? I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. When, when I was in seminary up at the Master's Seminary, I remember John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur, talking about an illustration that's frequently used in, in, in reference to the old man before we are Christian, the flesh, that old man versus the new man in, in, in being regenerated. And he was talking about how there's an illustration that's frequently used of a black dog and a white dog, and, and that there's this, this white dog that's in you, that's the new man, and there's the black dog that's in you, that's the old man, and, and, and they, they fight against each other all the time. And, and what's said frequently is, is, is the one that wins is the one that you feed most. If, if you feed the flesh, if you feed the, the black dog, that's, that's the one that will, will typically when if you if you feed the the white dog being that the new nature taking in god's word feeding from god's word that that the white dog will win but that there's this battle that's going on and and macarthur was saying like I, that, that he had a problem with that illustration and and the reason why he had a problem with that illustration was because the black dog is dead the black dog's dead and and we see that in in romans chapter 6 where where he says things like, knowing this, verse 6, that, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Or, or Romans six seventeen, where he says, but, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. That that, that, that old man, that 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 old nature, that black dog is dead. It's just, it's dead. And, and I remember a time that I have with, with a, another professor there, Dr. Jim Roskup. And, and I, I love this man. We, we would have a time where it was just two or three of us that would sit down with him, and it was a discipleship time. 
um, I, I, I respected him a lot. He taught a class on prayer, and, and part of the requirements of the class were that you had to pray for one hour. Um, he took it from the text where Jesus is in the garden, and, and Jesus says to the disciples, could you not watch and pray with me for one hour? And, and so part of the requirements to pass the class was that you had to pray for one hour. And this man would go through and just say, like, I, you will find that one hour is not enough. And he talked about his prayer life. And, and, and I just looked at this guy like, man, he is like, he's so humble. And at the same time, just has this heart for God and loves Christ. And we were talking about the, the black dog and the white dog illustration. And this just this small little discipleship time. And... And I, I was saying, you know, like MacArthur, you know, makes a great point that the, that the black dog is dead. And I remember this professor just said, yeah, I, I, I agree with MacArthur on that. But, you know, he sure doesn't feel dead sometimes. And, and I sat there just thinking, yeah, you're right. He sure, he sure doesn't feel dead sometimes. It, it, it feels like there's this conflict that is there, this difficulty that is there as far as the, the old man and the new man and that old nature. And, and as we looked at last week where, where Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, that, that there is this battle that takes place. And we find that, that within ourselves, there's nothing good that dwells. Um, sure doesn't feel like the black dogs did sometimes. And that's kind of where we come to in Romans chapter 7. You see in Romans 6 that we're new creations in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. Um, if you remember in, in our time in Romans 6, we, we talked about how before we were Christians, we were not able not to sin. Remember from St. Augustine? We, we were not able not to sin. But from the time that we became Christians, there was this change that took place where we were now able not to sin. Um, as we enter into eternity, we'll be not able to sin. But right now, the Holy Spirit is within us, and he always makes a way of escape. We have the ability through Christ in us to pursue righteousness, to please him. But sin is still there. It's still there within our lives. We see that in, in Romans 6 as well, where in verse 12 he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. And, and the point there is that, that it is possible. He wouldn't tell you, don't do this, unless it was possible for us to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. It's possible. For all of us as Christians, if we're true to God's word, we look and we see that, that God says something and we, and we sin. He commands us, do this, or don't do this. And we fail all the time. We come to a place like the Apostle Paul where we say, oh, wretched man that I am. Even as mature Christians, 
we sin. And we, we discussed this last week, but I I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm want to go a little bit deeper into it this morning, that there's, there's really a few different options as far as who it is that's speaking in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Who, who, who's speaking? Is it, is it Paul in the time that he was an unbeliever? Is it Paul speaking from a place of being what would be called a, a, a carnal Christian, a place of immaturity? Um, or is he speaking from a, a, a perspective of a mature Christian, coming from the place of a mature Christian? And this is something that has been debated for a long time. And last week I made it very clear that I, I believe that, that he is coming from the perspective of being a mature Christian. But I want to talk about that a little bit more. Why, why would this not be Paul as an unbeliever? To begin with, we look at this and we see that as Christians, even mature Christians, we sin. They, they look at this, those that would hold to being an, an unbeliever, they say, how can a Christian say, I'm carnal, sold, sold under sin? How can a Christian, a mature Christian, say, I am carnal, sold under sin? And we see that as mature Christians, we sin. We sin. We find it in Scripture over and over again, but specifically, let me just read to you from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, where, um, where God says through the author of Hebrews, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Don't, don't despise the chasing of the Lord. Don't be discouraged. Why? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. We sin. Don't be discouraged when, when God disciplines you because those that he loves, he disciplines, he chastens, he goes after. He leaves the 90 and 9 and he goes to get the one that went astray. The, the fact that God chastens us shows us that even as mature Christians, we sin. He says, don't. Don't despise that. As a believer, you know that there are times where God disciplines you. You know there's times where, where you're, you're falling in, into sin and, or you have fallen into sin and God, and God disciplines you, deals with you. I think of when, um, when I was in high school, I, I got a car and... Uh, my first car cost $100, and I, I, it was a Mercury Capri 72. And, and my dad told me how cool it was because it had a V6 engine in it. And like, it's like, you know, it was like a, you know, a Z, but it just didn't look as cool as a Z. And, uh, and, and I, I, was, I spray painted like the dashboard trying to make it look cool. I like waxed that thing even though... It, it needed a lot of help. I, I mean, spent a lot of time trying to make that thing look cool. And, and I never got to drive. I drove it backwards once. But what, what happened was, I was trying to learn the gear shift. But after going backwards just a little bit, the, the engine block just cracked. So we lost 100 bucks and gave it away, I think, to somebody else. 
Later on, I, I, I got another car, and it was $500, and it was a little brown um, Honda Civic. And it was so small, like my friends in high school would like bounce it across the parking lot <laughs> to a different spot. And, and, uh, and so I'd have to try to find my car because it got bounced across the parking lot. But towards the end of my senior year, I, I, I got a Camaro, and it was, it was very cool. And my parents should never have got this for me, but it was very cool. And, and I, I put the coolest rims on it. I, I saved up, and I put these, these rims. I, I had the back tires look like Corvette tires, and the front tires were smaller, and it had a, a bra on it. and a, It was just so cool. And I got these, these rims on it, and... I, I thought I looked so cool in it, and, and I was so excited, and I went through Burger King, and I, I scratched my whole rim going through the, the, the Burger King drive through and I heard it, and I went out and looked at it, and it was the first day, the first day that I had that thing, and I knew that in my heart, I thought I was so cool, you know? I thought I was so cool, and it's just like, you know, and bad, and it, you think that I would have learned, like, I, I, I was loving that thing too much. I was proud. Early college, three or two other friends and myself, we bought a boat. And it was just the coolest boat. It was Tom Iman's brother's boat. I didn't even know Tom at the time. But flames all over it, chrome engine, jet boat. It was, we thought it was so cool. We never, we took it out one time and it was hailing and it was just miserable. And... <laughs> But we polished it and polished it and polished it, and, and it looked really cool. And, and I remember just in my mind thinking how cool that I was going to look driving this boat, you know. And, and we said, no one take it out until we get insurance on this thing. Um, but apparently one of my friends took it out and totaled it on the way home. And so we had to go down to the cemetery where it landed and take sledgehammers and break the thing up into pieces and haul it to the dump. This thing, we, we kept paying for it for like another year and a half, but it was gone. It was at the dump. And I, I just, I remember when I saw what happened, I knew why it happened. I knew that there was just pride. It was just, there was so much pride in this boat and how cool I was going to look with it. And you think that it would stop. You think that there would come a point where you would just learn. I remember being in Uganda. First we were in Romania, and then we went down to Uganda, and I was with Derek. And Derek had just gotten knee surgery, but he, Pastor Derek Hole, who pastors Reverence Bible Church in Colorado Springs, and he had just gotten knee surgery, and he had this big brace. He was like, I could do it. I could do Romania and Uganda. And we were going down towards Uganda, and he realized I can't bend my leg. Like, how am I going to use the latrines? I can't bend my leg. And so he just stopped eating. And I thought it was funny. I laughed. I thought it was funny. And, and, and it was then when we were at this place in Dongo, this little refugee camp for the Sudanese, and this guy kicks a soccer ball over, a, over the goal, and everybody, there's hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people that's there, and they all saw this guy. I'm like, oh, because he kicked it so far. And I know the look on my face. The look on my face was something like, give me that ball. 
Because they were saying, this guy's the best soccer player here. I'm like, give me the ball. Like, I'm going to crack this thing, and it's going to go way further than that. And not only that, but I'll probably get the back of the net. And, and, and I set up, and all these people are watching, and I was so excited. And I went to hit the thing, and before I even made contact, I tore my quad like I have never, ever had an injury before. I honestly, like, I, I, I started seeing black, like I was going to faint. And Derek came up to me. He's like, dude, it's bad, huh? I'm like, no, dude, it's so bad. It is so bad. I can't. I'm going to faint. And I couldn't move my toes for weeks. I was laying in bed in, in this bed, and, and, and I couldn't get up. I couldn't move my leg. Here I laughed at Derek before, and now I'm just out of commission. And all I kept thinking was the look on my face going, give me the ball. I'll, I'll hit that thing, you know? And you think that I would learn, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the bed, we're playing Connect Four. We had played Connect Four like hundreds and hundreds of times. I was, I was beating Derek badly, and we always played the best of seven series, because we didn't want to do like WNBA. We, we, it was best of seven series, and, and I was up three nothing, the best of seven series. And I told Derek, I go, you know, like in the history of Connect Four, no one's ever come back from a 3 0 deficit. And he beat me. <laughs> and all I thought was, like, this has to be an act of God. Like, I'm like, the pride, it just kept coming. And it was there, and it was there. And even laying in a bed, unable to move my toes, it was still there. Derek was so happy, he took a picture of himself with his, and I go, what are you doing? He's like, it's just like one of the happiest days of my life right now. So I'm sure God's dealt with him too. But you look at it, and it just continues. And you would think that there would come a place where you would just come to a place where you don't deal with sin anymore. And yet it's still there. It creeps up. It creeps up at all different times. Whether it be pride or lust or covetousness, anger, whatever it is, it keeps coming up. And you see here where, where mature Christians can sin. They do sin. You see in 1 John where, where John says, whoever confesses his sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we need that. We need to confess our sins and, and have him forgive us. We, we see that the argument of, of Paul in, in, in this thing saying those that say he's an, an unbeliever at the time also say that you know, in, in Romans seven eighteen, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I don't find. And so they would say, can a true believer say that in me, nothing good dwells? Well, I think we can accurately say as a Christian that in me, that is in my flesh, as Paul says. In me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Um, you hear Paul say, 
in Philippians 3 that, that we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and we have no confidence in the flesh. That in our flesh, there should not be any kind of confidence. That we can say as believers, in me that is in my flesh, there's nothing good that dwells. We examine our lives, we look at it, and we say, my old nature, that, that person that I was, that, that, in my flesh, apart from God's enabling, there's, there's nothing good in me at all. There's a propensity towards sin over and over and over again. In fact, before Paul was a Christian, when he describes himself as he was before he was Christian, he had a very high view of himself. Those that say, uh, can can a believer say, um, in me nothing good dwells? Well, as an unbeliever, Paul thought very highly of himself. He, He says in Philippians 3, 4, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is from the law, blameless. I was blameless. In his mind, before I was a Christian, I was, I was blameless. He thought of himself as being totally okay. And when you talk to people who are unbelievers, usually they don't say things like, in me, nothing good dwells. Usually they look at themselves and say, I think I'm okay. I think I could get to heaven. I'm not as bad as other people are. I think man is basically good. It's not until the Holy Spirit reveals to us from his word the law and shows us the holiness of God that we look at ourselves and say, nothing good in me. The only thing good in me is God working in me. Think of the, the Pharisee in Luke 18 where he, he stands up and prays saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. In his mind, it was, I'm okay. Here he is, an unbeliever, and he's saying, I'm okay. I, I thank you that I'm not like these other people who are out there. It's through the Holy Spirit that the Christian can see the true condition of his heart. In his flesh, nothing good dwells. It's, it's only through Christ in me and through abiding in him that anything good can come from our lives. Apart from him, we could do nothing. He says here in, in Romans 7, how to perform what is good I do not find. And so people say, how can a, how can a believer say that? He must be an unbeliever because how can a believer say how to perform what is good I do not find? And Holy Spirit definitely, he directs us, shows us how to live and convicts us of sin, especially through the power of his word and in scripture. He he tells us in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who, who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. But there's still the old nature, that old man, the flesh that causes great temptations and is unable to provide any means of victory over sin without the enabling of the Holy Spirit. For, for me and, and, and the, the, the process of, of what I was talking about with from the, the car to the boat to the, you know, to the soccer kick to the Connect Four game, 
you, you look at it and, and to so many other areas of my life, like, I, I, I can't take my life and look at it and be like, okay, from now on, that's it. I'm going to be humble. Like, as, as soon as you think you got it, you just lost it. That's how humility works. You, you can't go around like, I, I think I'm really humble. Conquered that one. You just became proud, like, as soon as you think you got it. The, the only way humility comes is by God showing us who we are in our total dependence upon him. I mean, God bringing us to a place of showing us our sin. I appreciate a book by, by C.J. Mahaney called Humility, and, and he goes through this and talks about that he's a very proud man writing a book on humility, but he, he, he has a section how to to weaken pride and cultivate humility. And he, he gives some things like, here's some suggestions, just a list of suggestions to, to have humility. Re- reflect, number one, on the wonder of the cross. Just reflect on the wonder of the cross. Like, hey, th- th- there is nobody who would ever be before the foot of the cross watching Christ be crucified for all of our sins and, and being in a place where he's, he's taking all of our sin upon himself. There's none of us that would be in that place and and want to be proud. He says, number two, begin your day by acknowledging your dependence upon God and your need for God. Starting your day, I just, I need him. I'm totally dependent on him. Begin your day by expressing gratefulness to God. Number three. Number four, practice the spiritual disciplines of prayer and the study of God's word and worship. Do this consistently each day and at the, the day's outset if it's possible. Number five, seize your commute time to memorize and meditate on Scripture. Number six, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. Number seven, at the end of the day, transfer the, the glory to God. Anything that you did that you thought was something, just give all of the glory of it to God. Before going to sleep, receive the gift of sleep from God and acknowledge his purpose for sleep, that you need it. Number nine, study the attributes of God. Study how magnificent he is. Number 10, study the doctrines of grace, realizing that the only reason why we are Christians is because of God's grace upon us. Study the doctrine of sin. Learn about sin. Learn about who you are. Number 12 is funny. Play golf as much as possible. <laughs> Good way to create humility. Laugh often and laugh often at yourself, number 13. Number 14, identify evidences of grace in others. Number 15, encourage and serve others each and every day. Number 16, invite and pursue correction. And number 17, respond humbly to trials. And so you look at the the things as far as here's how you do humility, find humility. It's not in I've conquered it. It's realizing that, that we're nothing, that we're dependent upon him, that we need him. Having his word have that effect on our hearts in prayer and in casting our cares upon him. Knowing that we're not able to do everything by ourselves. And so we need it. Every aspect of fighting and spiritual warfare is is recognizing our dependence upon him. You, you hear Paul in, in Ephesians talking about how do we fight? How, how do we fight sin? And his response is, 
be strong in the Lord and, and in the power of his might. Be strong in him. How do we fight sin? We, 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 we as Christians, are, how do we fight it in the power of his might? And every aspect of it is that. And, and so we would look at this and say, these things that those would look at and say, can, an un, can a believer really say these things, that I'm, in, I'm carnal, I'm sold under sin? I would say, yes, we can. That is in our flesh. We are in a, a, a place where, man, it, it sure doesn't feel like the black dogs did sometimes. It's there. But also, I, I, I look at this text, and I, and I, I would ask the, the question, can, a, can an unbeliever say some of the things that are in here? Like, I agree with the law that it is good. Can, can the believer say that? I agree with the law that it is good. Can the believer say, evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good? Does the, un, does the unbeliever ever will to do good as far as to please God? Or can an unbeliever say, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man? And, and I, I would think not. You look in Romans 3 where he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. And verse 18 says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And so I don't think that that an unbeliever would say the things that we find at the end of Romans chapter 7. And not only that, but there's a major change that takes place from verse 13 to verse 14. It goes from him saying what he was, past tense, to everything's now in the present tense. I am carnal for what I am doing, I don't understand. I find in a law that evil is present with me. O wretched man that I am. Everything shifts to this is what I am right now. And we would say, he's a mature believer. Even at the end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he refers to himself as, as saying, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. I am chief. I'm the chief of all sinners. Everything is in the present tense. Well, then there'd be also those that would say it's not talking about an unbeliever because how can an unbeliever say the things that we looked at? But how can a Christian say these things as well, a mature Christian? It must be talking about a carnal Christian. The idea of a carnal Christian has become widely accepted by many today. You hear people say things like, when did you accept Jesus as your Savior? And then it may be followed by the question of, well, when did he become the Lord of your life? as if there's two separate events that took place. He becomes your savior, and then later on, there's another experience that you have where he becomes the Lord of your life. The gospel is presented with a call to believe and, and to pray a prayer, but sometimes it's, it's not presented with a call to repentance and, and telling people the cost of being a disciple or, or the need to hate one's sin and to follow Christ as our Lord, as the Lord of one's life. And and, and those things are frequently omitted. The term carnal Christian was created to describe the person who says they believe, but their lives are indistinguishable from the unbeliever. You don't see any difference in their life. They, look, they, they said the prayer, they walked the aisle, they threw the twig, they did whatever it was, and, and, and yet you look at their life and, and it just, it, they would recognize, I believe these facts, 
about Christ, but their lives are indistinguishable from the rest of the world. Never repented. They don't hate their own sin. And these people would never speak like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. You hear people say things like, get out of Romans 7 as a Christian and get into Romans 8. I mean, I mean stop being carnal and, and, and get to a place where there's victory in your life. But I don't believe there's such a thing as a carnal Christian. There's no second category of Christians who have received Christ as Savior but not as Lord. All Christians, even the most mature Christians, ought to sound like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. He is our Lord. He's our Savior. And although we grow in our walk and in our relationship with Christ, there must be repentance. There must be a hatred of one's sin. There must be conviction. There must be a loving desire to follow Christ as our Lord, as the Lord of our lives upon conversion. You, you may be here this morning and you, you call yourself a Christian. If anybody asks, you would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But when you evaluate your life and, and you ask questions like that, has there been repentance? Like the, the, the sin that's in your life, have you ever repented of it? Have you ever made a change of direction and said, I want to go the opposite way? Do you, do you even, after falling into sin, have thoughts like, what am I doing? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I hate are the very things that I do. Who can save me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. Is, does that go through your mind or is it more, I'm fine. And there's no conviction. There's no battle that's taking place between oh, the things I want to do, I don't do. You just, you just live like the world and there's no conviction at all. If that's your place, even though you say that there's facts there, I'd exhort you, you, you got to evaluate, are you a believer? You may place yourself into a category of, I'm, 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 just, I'm a carnal Christian, I think. I believe all the facts, but I just am not there right now. But you got to face texts that come to us from, Places like Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. To those who are the called, they love him. It just, it's synonymous. To those who are the called, they love him. 1 Corinthians 16.22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Do you love him? It doesn't mean that there's a life of Perfection. we go back to Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am. But we love him. As a believer, you love him. You want to please him. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. And so I'd ask you, are there holy affections for him? Do you look at the sin that's in your life and think, oh, I hate it. I don't want to do these things. Why is it that the things I want to do, I don't do. I hate these things. I love him. I want to please him. Why do I keep going back to these old things? Why does that black dog still have to keep resurfacing? He's supposed to be dead. I hate that thing. I hate that old man. I, hate, I just I want to please him. We, 
We looked at, at Hebrews where it tells us that God chastens those that he loves. If, if you live in just habitual sin and there's no chastening that takes place, God says you're illegitimate. You're not a son. You're not a daughter. You don't belong to him because he will chasten you. I, I love it when I hear someone say, man, every time I do that, I always get caught. And I just think that's such a good sign. That is such a good sign. That God is chastening you. He's disciplining you. So do you love him? I don't think loving God is for the mature Christian and the carnal Christian doesn't. I think all of us as Christians love him. We grow in our love for him. I mean, part of the reason why we spend so much time talking about the gospel and so much time talking about the character of Christ, the character of our God, the power of our God, the grace that he's shown us, part of the reason why we talk about our sin so much is because we want to look at these things and see, I am a sinner, I didn't deserve anything, and his grace came upon me, and it was all of him, and he's all-powerful, and he's done these things, and he's given me his Holy Spirit, he's made me who was blind able to see, and he keeps me to the very end, and he does all these things. The reason why we talk about this is because we, we want it to be where you grow in your love for him, where you just you, you treasure him more than stuff, and more than yourself. You love him. You just love him. You fall more deeply in love with him daily as you feed on him, as you learn about him. You'll grow in your love, but I don't think that there could be a believer who does not love him. Has there been repentance? There's those that would say you could believe, but repentance comes later on, and I see repentance as being synonymous with conversion. Find passages like Acts 2.38 where Peter says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he begins with, Repent. In Acts 3.19 it says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. And Paul, he describes those that, or Paul describes those that are converted in 1 Thessalonians 1 9 saying they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned to God away from the idols to serve the true and living God. Repentance is absolutely essential to salvation. And a continual repentance that takes place in our lives. You see that in 1 Corinthians where. First Corinthians, the church is doing all kinds of terrible things. Relationships with, with family members that are totally inappropriate. All kinds of stuff that takes place. And, and Paul just calls them over and over again to repentance. If they don't repent, they're to be cast out. Because repentance is critical to being a believer. We don't make Christ Lord. He is Lord. We don't make him anything. He is Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross, and, and follow him. There's, there's other places where... Man, to be a believer comes with incredible cost. Um, 
I, I always try to keep up in the news with what's taking place in places like Iran and, and, and other areas like that where you see a pastor that, that is in prison and, and he's waiting to find out if, if it's going to be capital punishment because he is converted to Christianity and he's leading others into, in the gospel to, to know Christ. And man, I, I just think these people, they become Christians and they know that it comes with just incredible cost. Sometimes for us in a place where there's freedom and, and affluence and, and all these things, it's, it's easier to become a Christian and still kind of look just like the world. And yet, that's not what God's intent was when he told us to follow him. God tells us that those that are in habitual, unrepentant sin are not Christians. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says... Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There is a, a weakening, just such an incredible weakening of the church in regards to sections like this. The whole thing that took place with the inauguration and the prayer, and Louis Giglio saying that, 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 he, disagreed, that, that, that he believed this particular text as far as the unrepentant homosexual will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. But because he said that a homosexual will not inherit the kingdom of God, our administration said, we will find someone to do the prayer that, that agrees with our position. And so if you noticed in the prayer, it talked about um, the just... Acceptance of all people, regardless of race or color or religion or sexual preference. And you look at that and you just think, that's not what God says. We, we look at this and, and I, I'd hate to be known as a church that bashes, bashes homosexuals or anybody in different sins. I, I pray that we would be those that we love them. That there'd be people who would come to our church who struggle with that sin. But they don't look at themselves as, I am a homosexual because you're not. You're a child of God who has been forgiven. But you maybe struggle with that sin. You're not an adulterer. Maybe you struggled with that sin. You're not to continue to live in fornication. We'll hold you accountable, but maybe you struggle with that sin. But such were some of you. But it's not a lifestyle that just goes on that says, I'm not changing. I'm going to live as a thief or, or as a fornicator, or as an idolater, as an adulterer, as a homosexual, as a sodomite, uh, a drunkard or extortioner. I'm not, going to, I'm, not, I'm not going to live like that anymore. That was who I am, but I hate it. I'm going to run as far as I can away from it. I don't want to do these things anymore. Christ is in me. God, help me. So everything in you desires to flee from it. We sin. 
but like David who committed adultery and murder, come to him like he does in Psalm 51, saying, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, acknowledge my transgressions, my sins always before me, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. God, help me. We repent. And then we do everything we can to fight sin. I appreciate in Jonathan Edwards' resolutions where he says things like, resolve never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. I'm never going to stop fighting it by God's enabling, regardless of how many times I mess up. Or resolve whenever I do any conspicuously evil action to trace it back till I come to the original cause and both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and pray with all my might against the original of it. I'm going to do everything I can to fight against the sin that's in me. Look at it. How did that happen? God help me. I'm going to go back. What's the original cause? I'm going to kill that thing. I hate that thing. I want to please him. So... Believe that it's a mature Christian that says things like, for what am I doing? I don't understand. What I will to do, I don't do. What I practice that I hate to do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I don't find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. This mentality, this way of thinking should be a battle that all of us fight. Coming to the conclusion, like Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the conclusion is, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. I thank him thing that I will to do, I don't do. Who can save me? I thank God. It's through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Help us to, to look at a text like this and to think like that. Knowing that That we were crucified with you. That the black dog, dog is dead. But at the same time, there's this battle that takes place. And you can make it so there's victory for us. It's only through you that there could be victory. And we thank you that though we're covered with sin, through Christ, our Savior, you've, you've removed all of the sin from us. You've taken it all away. I pray, Lord, that we would think like Paul. We would desire so much to please you. That we would be in a place of, of never giving up in our fight against sin, regardless of how unsuccessful we are. Never slacken the fight. Because we know the God that we serve, and we know that you are able. May we be a dependent, dependent people upon you. And may the fruit of that in our lives be 
us being molded more and more into your image as your Holy Spirit works in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And Lord Jesus, if there's anybody here who they're an unbeliever or they they think that they're a believer but they look at themselves this morning and see that there is no longing to please you. There's no love for you. There's no repentance that's ever taken place. May today be the day of salvation for them. God, please save them. Convict them. Enable them to see themselves as you reveal yourself in Scripture to us and show us our sin, Lord. Enable them to see it and may today be the day that they come to salvation. We praise you, Lord. Be glorified in our worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.